What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in to the podcast. This episode marks phase two of a food brand. In particular, this episode is a brand of water, YK Springs. Ryan Emmons is the CEO and founder, and he's going to be diving deep into the sales, marketing, and a little bit of the accounting for you guys, diving deep into setting up those systems and scaling. Enjoy. Before I play the interview, if you feel like you are a confused entrepreneur or you feel like you are just so confused about how entrepreneurship works, this show is for you because I try to offer microscopic understanding through this podcast with entrepreneurship, really understanding how to get from zero to one, one to two, one to three, etc. So please share this with your friends that might be entrepreneurs as well or curious because this content will help them out. Also, with whatever platform you're listening on, just subscribe, rate, and review the show. It takes about 20 seconds, and if you don't, I'll be so, so hurt. So please go and do that. Pause this episode right where it's at. After subscribing to my show, go subscribe to my YouTube channel as well because I do offer videos and other content there that really breaks down and gives you leverageable, actionable things about entrepreneurship that you can digest and think more about and also implement into your own entrepreneurial journey. So go and subscribe to that niche, the niche. With all that being said, guys, let's jump into the interview. Hi, Ryan. You ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. Let's do it, man. So quickly just introduce yourself here so we know a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what business you run, and then we can go from there. Yeah, so my name is Ryan Emmons. I am the co-founder and CEO of Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water. We're basically a carbon-neutral Fiji meets Tom Shoes, oh. uh, <laughs> to put it really easy for people. Um, but yeah, we founded this company to basically create a transformation from within the beverage and CPG industry away from kind of singular profit and really focusing on sustainable packaging, sustainable sourcing, our people, both local and abroad. And, and yeah, so that's what we've been doing for seven years. So Ryan, how did you initially get started and interested in that space? Like what was the initial thought for you being like, I'm going to start this? What was the goal, the end goal? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was really lucky. I mean, you know, like, you know, with, uh, with Gary Vee and everyone, they're always yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> don't go to college, you know, um, and when I would, I would counter that and I would say, go to college. But if you have an idea of what you might like to do, you're in a, you're in, you're going to be in a much better place. And for me, I want to go to college so that I could become an entrepreneur. I actually, so USC down in Southern California, yeah, um, had the, still has a, like a top five program, but at the time I had the number one undergrad, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship program. So not like grad school or anything like that. And that was really unique. And that's really the reason why I wanted to go to school. So I started working. So I basically was like, you know, I really wanted to become an entrepreneur. I was pretty entrepreneurship in high school. I had like raised like 40,000 bucks for um, Hurricane Katrina victims by people that had to relocate and also like victim funds. And I like created this, this, it's, it's honestly, it's not like a, a very original idea but it worked and it was pretty awesome and it was a it was like a custom monopoly board game for santa barbara because i was living in santa barbara at the time ah. um and so i got basically all these different like 
local businesses to basically give me sponsorship money. They got a space and we sold like a couple thousand units, uh, tens of thousands of units. And yeah, so that was kind of my first little taste. Uh, And I, I think I really, you know, it was a really good feel good element too with like social entrepreneurship. So I kind of knew I wanted to do something along those lines. Hmm. And then USC, you know, I pleaded with them. Normally you can't do those classes until you're like a junior or a senior. And I, I pleaded with them to be able to start taking classes when I was a freshman wow. uh, within the Marshall School of Business. And, uh, and they let me uh, audit some classes. And then um, I got to start actually taking basically the, the junior and the senior classes when I was a sophomore. And uh, I started basically doing my first feasibility analysis and I knew I wanted to be in water. And I didn't necessarily know what it was going to be in water. I was super involved in clean water NGOs, both in Africa and uh, all over the place. You know, I was, I was fascinated by every aspect of water from water infrastructure. You know, we have issues obviously in the US. Yeah. Um, but if you talk about, you know, you know, every single state has infrastructure issues. And then there's also the bulk water trade um, that people aren't really aware of that's going on between nations where you have these, you know, these these tugboats that are basically carrying what are called Medusa bags, which are like, they carry acre feet of water in these undulating bags underwater. And anyway, not, <laughs> you know, was not trying to be a water baron or anything, but those all, the CapEx that was required for all of these different things, you know, for a disruptive technology and water infrastructure, for, uh, you know, a more advanced desal that is more environmentally friendly. It was just like tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And so then I looked at water from, uh, you know, the the beverage and the consumer packaged goods side. And I saw that, you know, premium water was was growing, you know, between 10 and 15% a year within a growth category of overall water. And I saw that really there wasn't a single single source or premium water that was uh, addressing all of these sustainability issues. Um, and it was really just a lot of greenwashing, to be honest, wow. back in the day. And so I kind of thought, you know, how can we how can we kind of change things? And I felt like we kind of could have a, a good niche, to be honest. And it's kind of borne out. So, yeah. Quite a journey, but Ryan, I like to get this interview kicked off with just a random question uh, to keep it light and fun. And so I saw that online you wanted to be a professional footballer when you were little. So what? Why? Why was that the goal when you were little to become a professional footballer? And who was your favorite footballer? Oh man, um, <laughs> where did you find that? <laughs> I'm not sure where it was. I think it was on your company's site, just the About Me page. No. Really? I'm not a hundred percent sure. It might it might have just been like an interview that you did somewhere else, and then That's it was really funny. I mean, I definitely <laughs> did want to be a professional soccer player at some point. I mean, growing up, I was just a huge Barcelona fan. Mm. All my guys. I mean, to be honest, I was also a huge like. So, I spent quite a bit of time in France when I was growing up as well, and. Um, was actually there during the when they won the World Cup in um, I think it was like 98 97 and uh, so Thierry Henry I would say no way <laughs> say he's like probably two and then I would actually say the 
the headbutt king himself, Zinedine Zidane, is probably my number one. I was like mm. so, so upset when when that happened, and he and you know, oh, that killed me. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so definitely my two of my guys right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Ryan, to to move on into the sales process within your company and how you initially kicked that off, what systems you had, and all that good stuff. We're gonna be diving deep into that. So to start, what was your initial sales tactic when you had just started this company? What were the systems that you were thinking? What were your angles with that process? And then how did that evolve in the next coming months? Tell us about that process. Yeah, so there wasn't like a lot of like developed like cloud apps and things like online that you can use, which we now have realistically in 2012. There was not, not a whole lot going on. But I was also super unsophisticated. Uh, because I launched the company when I was when I was like 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we actually got our first sale in June of 2012, so I would have been 22. And so, you know, for us, it was just like we didn't want to waste everyone. Like we didn't want to waste our own time or money, and we didn't want to waste our family's time and money because we had asked them for some loans mm-hmm. on a pipe dream. And so our whole thing was just, you know, you're going to hear it again and again and again, but MVP, minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to, how are we going to get the product out there? Um, and so for us, you know, it was, we used, uh, you know, a, a co-packer both in Hawaii and also in LA. And we were able to basically, we, we you know, the big CapEx for us was custom molds because we know the bottle was going to be huge. We did a lot of feasibility to, you know, see how we could kind of piggyback on the Fiji brand because they were the first kind of, PET bottle that was kind of synonymous with premium. And so we thought, okay, you know, let's do that, but do our own spin on it. Um, so that's where you have color. Uh, and obviously we don't use PET. We use um, post upcycled um, PET. After we actually designed the bottle and there's obviously a lot that goes into that, our whole thing was, you know, let's just get it out there. And no distributor is going to, you know, randomly give you a shot. If you're a no-name brand, you you got to go out and you got to get the sales yourselves. And so what we did is we literally, you know, we rented truck trucks um, in Hawaii and we also rented U-Hauls in LA, and we were just self-distributing. And we basically developed, you know, a, we eventually got that base over the course of the year to about 100 accounts. We were like, oh shit, we're outselling, you know, Evian, Boss, Fiji, all these guys, as long as we have similar shelf space and facings mm. facings is like you know there's yeah. like four bottles you know because the, that's the whole thing is we basically if you give us, us the same exact opportunities on the shelf we will outsell these brands mm. and so we saw that and that was super exciting we leveraged that to our first distributor who took us on because we basically were handing him all these accounts that's kind of how distributors work as sad as it is you got to do most of the work and then just hand them over the business but yeah man so then we kind of started expanding regionally after that and uh but putting more focus in hawaii and kind of again kind of started getting more distributors we were doing a lot of trade shows which is a really good way for meeting retailers so fancy food show expo west a lot of the hospitality shows out in hawaii and that was it. And, you know, it was attending a lot of mixers, like putting myself out there again and again and again and way out of my comfort zone because I'm, you know, I'm a pretty social guy. But realistically is, you know, I think it, it's definitely <laughs> it's different, man. And when you're when you're young and like 
you know, all these people are 10 to 20 years older than you. It's sometimes hard to like get the confidence to just like interject in a conversation in a polite way and introduce yourself and, you know, put yourself into that situation. So anyway, but that's kind of what you had to do. You know, we, the whole thing for us was always just letting the data speak for itself and just showing people how we were performing in store because that was nothing that anyone could argue with. Yeah, that's so true. And Ryan, kind of a short answer here. What would, what do you recommend the first steps within this process, the sales process, when you're launching this thing within a company like yours, what would the two first steps be when creating a sales structure? Just the first two, nothing else other than the first two, just dive deep into what those would be in your, your experience. Yeah. So first thing, honestly, would be get a Shopify store. Hmm. Don't do retail until you're profitable online. That would be my first advice. Uh, the second thing would be, I would say, really honing in on focusing on customer service more so than anything else. Hmm. When we built out our Shopify, which was way late in the game, immediately we realized it was our most profitable segment and immediately um, our lifetime value which is basically how many, you know, over the course of the year, how much revenue you'll be doing through on average with one customer. And it was $550 for us. And we were like, holy hell, what an opportunity lost that like literally I could have, you know, we could have financed the entire rest of the business with, with our online if we had started it off right. So yeah, that's what I would do. Ryan, with this sales process in particular, what would you tell a young aspiring entrepreneur to avoid when trying to sell in the early stages? What are the things that you know that we should just stay away from when trying to sell early on? Um, as much as you love the product and you might think it's like super differentiated, realistically, the buyer doesn't give a shit. It's so like, you know, this is just my segment, but it does apply to, you know, any other person that's going to be pitching actual brick and mortar retail, like Whole Foods, et cetera. For, for them, what, what really matters is, are you in a growth category? Because otherwise, like, there's no way that they're going to remove other products that are much bigger than you yeah. to, to bring in a new product where they have no idea if you're going to sell. So there's a lot more flexibility if you're in a growth category and that's growing 10% a year. They're like, okay, like, you know, I have a little more leeway here. But the other thing is you just have to, you know, it, as much as you love the product, can't be emotional. It has to be data driven, because ultimately that's how you're going to convince them. Is you're going to show them, you're going to show them the numbers. You know, if their only point of reference to all these other brands is that they're national brands and they sell a lot. So if you're able to immediately establish um, that in every single point of, of distribution that you share with them, you're doing as well as them, if not better. That's a, that's a case study. You're basically, as an entrepreneur, the first two years, you're just building case studies. Yeah. And then you're showing those off. And that's the way that you got to do it. It can't be anything else. Mm. So, Ryan, just because, in my experience, when you talk about numbers, what numbers in particular are you showing them? Are you, show, are you showing them the sales numbers or the growth from point A to point B? Like, what numbers in particular are you showing distributors to, say, put the put this on your shelf? rather than this this brand what what yeah, numbers so, are those in particular so in beverage that's like units per week okay. so how many units are basically going through the register every week uh, when you're young when you're young and when you're when you don't have any money you can't have access to there's in the industry there's two major kind of market 
research. Um, there's Nielsen, which you might have heard from other industries. They basically aggregate a lot of data from majority of retailers through the register. And so a lot of brokers, which is, you know, everyone uses brokers in my industry, which are basically like sales partners that help you grow your sales for like 5% commission. Most brokers have access to IRI data. And then they also have access to spins. And spins is basically the same thing, but it's specifically for natural. So Whole Foods has their own portal that they have access to. And so at first, you know, when we didn't have, we didn't have access to these guys, I was just literally asking my store managers. I was like, hey, can you just like, <laughs> how are we doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I knew my depletion. I knew how, based on like, you know, the cases that I was dropping off on a, on a weekly basis, I, I generally knew, you know, how, I were, how we were performing. And so I would get a baseline from the store manager, the guy who's actually buying all these other products, all, my, all the other competitors. Hmm. Um, and that was a way that I was able to compare. But, you know, then a year or two into the business, I, you know, we had access to some Whole Foods portal because we would just ask people for the data, um, people that we knew in the industry, and they would like hook it up. And then that gave me a baseline. Um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, how you're selling your velocities per, per week. And as long as they're trending in the right way over time, you know, that's really what you're focusing on. Um, and then also, so in, in my industry, there's a lot of promotions oh. to get people to come in and try all new products. So you got to make sure that you're having lift after a promotion. So generally, is your sales baseline going to improve from five units a week to 10 units a week after you do a promo and, you know, and so on and so forth over time. Uh, and so those are big things that people look at. Mm. So Ryan, moving on to the marketing within your business and what you did to market yourself, what were the initial systems that you had with marketing that helped you get to the point you're at now? And then how did the ones at the beginning evolve? Just kind of like sales, but shifting to marketing. How did you initially set up those systems in marketing? What facets did you did you use? And then start explaining some of those for us. Yeah, so we realized very quickly that like our industry is pretty old school. Um, you know, very much traditional media, not so much like progressing. Now it's different, but at the time, there was very, very little focus on digital. And so for us, first and foremost, it was, <clears throat> let's be, let's have the best content in our industry. And we still do that to this day. So we established a brand rubric so that we could have guidelines and guardrails so that we could be consistent, authentic to our core values, to our mission, to our purpose. That really carried through hmm. to, you know, my first VP of marketing, who was originally an intern. You know, she knew the brand. She, we developed a process around around our content to make sure that it was consistent over time. You have that. That's also when you're going to get a lot more engagement from your following. Uh, and people are going to follow you. People don't want to follow a boss or, like, Fiji when they're just showing, like, bottle photos. Like, who gives a shit? Like, give me, <laughs> give me some meat. Give me something, like, give me an amazing experience. Like, yeah, share with me on, on like, you know, I want to find find out new information. I want to hear a creative story about, you know, how we removed like 50 million tons of ocean plastic from from Texas Philippines. You know, <laughs> I I, I want to yeah like I want to I want to see how we're supporting the Hawaiian community and like you know what exactly is going. So anyway, all of this mm -hmm. stuff is really was a big focus for us. I mean, we kind of took a Red Bull approach to like lifestyle marketing, lifestyle content. That was so that was number one. 
Uh, and number two is just honestly just consistently being open to different digital tools. So a lot of a lot of CEOs are kind of closed, like you know, very much like focused on yeah, you know sales and what they need to do. And I totally w- was that, but um, you know, people would reach out to me on like LinkedIn and reach out to me via email with like if there were sales reps for different softwares or marketing tools or you know consultants. Um, and I kind of was always open, and I would like give them ten minutes of my time. Um, and see what they had to say. And, you know, even if only 5% of them actually made sense for us or like, you know, piqued my interest, you know, I was so, we were so being open to so many other ideas. We, we onboarded all that technology and it helped us grow our, our digital and our online presence and our, our marketing portfolio tremendously. You know, we started with MailChimp, then we had HubSpot. We still have HubSpot to this day, um, but MailChimp is amazing. And, you know, again, it was just a lot of smaller tools, you know, integrations with Shopify, things like that over time that, again, uh, just having our ear to the ground really allowed us to be uh, flexible. And then we got and then we got used to adapting new technologies and new tools really quickly um, versus, you know, other companies being much, much slower in doing so. Mm. So you've been creating content for about seven years with your company. Is that correct? That's what yeah. your that's what your goal was. I think that's really smart because going back to Gary V, the people that on this on the show listening to this episode, they know that Gary V, or if they know him, they know he has content as his number one priority with his personal brand and what he's doing. And I feel like that's coming to pass within your company as well because you have that solidified content and it's creative that's not just showing your product. It's actually more than that. It's really understanding everything that you're doing and you've had that system in place. I think it's super cool because it's not conventional. And so, but did you, did you Ryan do any sort of promotions through Facebook ads or Instagram ads, or did you, do you, have you done that facet? And would you so recommend Instagram ads like and that? Facebook ads didn't exist when I was first. Do you do them Facebook now? Ads, Facebook ads were at like the very beginning, which was a big deal. And Instagram oh. still hadn't gotten bought. So, so yeah, that was interesting. I mean, for us, it was originally a lot of, it was a lot of Google ads, just really targeting through through Google ads. But we do a lot of our acquisition, our customer acquisition is through Facebook and, and hmm. now Instagram ads, now that they've, it's been kind of growing. Um, but yeah, and we still do Google ads. We still focus on SEO. Really, most of our focus now is, is on our Shopify and just like, you know, our Facebook campaigns and Instagram campaigns Everything is, you know, we've kind of dialed it in and we kind of know what to expect. We know the general CPA that we're looking for. And it's always, you know, you get to a point where you might have a really low CPA for, you know, when you're doing a a Facebook ad campaign, Mm -hmm. but it's always hard to scale that because, you know, there's kind of a limit. And so it's, it requires a lot of creativity, but I think for Shopify, what's been a huge thing for us is, you know, if we have a 6% conversion on our Shopify, which is really, really high. Yeah. And that's because we've made it like the easiest experience for our customers. And we have, you know, so we have like a hundred percent customer satisfaction rate, like literally week in and week out because I have mm. dedicated 24 hour customer service to you. So I think it's for us when once, once things started rolling, it was finding out other ways that we could be really unique um, and realizing that, you know, if Shopify is our most profitable channel uh, and if we can instill so much loyalty, then we need to put all our resources and all our efforts into making sure that that customer experience is 
as simple as Amazon, you know, three clicks mm -hmm. and that people keep on coming back. So true. So Ryan, initially when you start marketing in a young entrepreneur's mind and, and, and your knowledge, the knowledge that you have, what would you recommend that we do initially right when we're starting marketing for a company like yours? What do you recommend that they should do very first? Is it creating content for years and years and years and having that you know, solidify and be an authority for your company? Or is there some other route that you know of? What is optimal that you would say a young entrepreneur should do if they're going to be running a company like yours and setting up the marketing? What do you recommend? The content, like I don't, like content was super important, but I wouldn't say that, I would say once we figured it out and once I had, you know, once I set up those guardrails and again, that process, I then could basically have my VP of marketing that would be able to come in and help for my, my intern at the time. You know, that was definitely super important. But in terms of setting up marketing, it's, you know, just read, hmm. read a shit ton of books and talk to your friend and talk to your mentors. Find me on LinkedIn, you know, do like seriously reach out to people and don't be afraid to do so. Mm. Gary V says the same thing. It just literally like put yourself out there and talk to people that have figured it out. That's the number one thing that you can do. Otherwise you're going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to go through a lot of pitfalls and which is a natural part of being an entrepreneur. But if you can avoid some of that shit, um, you know, you're going to be a much better person <laughs> in a much better position. Mm. So, I mean, to be honest, I would say like, best thing for you to grow your marketing is to get a mentor that's crushed it and just pick his brain. I know that's like super basic. It's not super detailed, but it's totally going to depend based on your industry. You know, I'm industry agnostic here. That's what you should do regardless of your industry. Hmm. So Ryan, quickly to talk about the numbers within your, your company, what was the initial thing that you were doing to handle the accounting aspect of your company? Was it QuickBooks? What were you doing to make sure that your numbers were staying true to your company and you could read them correctly, make decisions off of that data? What were you doing initially? You, what were you doing initially to, to handle that aspect of your business? And then how did you eventually evolve that quickly? Yeah. So I did QuickBooks and it sucked. <laughs> QuickBooks was, uh, it sucks for everyone still, but like, it's yeah. like, it's definitely gotten better. Supposedly I had a bookkeeper, but before I had a bookkeeper, I was basically, I had, you know, I was doing it myself. And then I mm -hmm. hired a guy to kind of just help me out with my books. Like this was back in the day when they didn't really have a, like a, a cloud system. Uh, so we had like our fucking QuickBooks file on a USB drive and my, no. uh, my accountant consultant, like lost it like twice. And it was like, like, dude, things were <laughs> very different and like, it was not a good situation. But anyway, so I, I have some, uh, yeah, I have some trauma from QuickBooks back in the day. But anyway, yeah. QuickBooks is great. There's so many other solutions nowadays that are also like really easy. Everything, the you know, the fact that you can just process receipts and stuff now on your phone so yeah. easily. And this is really, really like everything's honestly much more simple. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, you know, when it comes to like a manufacturing environment, and you're dealing with so many different variables like for us so typically when you get to that point there are plenty of companies that like get to like 20 million and they still are on quickbooks but dude they struggle to continue to grow because they don't have the right systems in place um and so what happens is in my industry a lot of people that end up manufacturing they get an enterprise resource manager 
Enterprise Resource Planner, ERP, or MRP, Manufacturing Resource Planner, um, that basically um, is their operations systems and their accounting all in one. And it's kind of a requirement if you're going to be a fast-growing company these days um, and, and, and you're actually in control of your own manufacturing. So for us, we tried Salesforce. Uh, they didn't really, they had some like, ERP plugins, but nothing that was like native. We basically, it wasn't going to work for us. Hmm. So we went to NetSuite Oracle and we've been on NetSuite for the last three years and it's been friggin' awesome. Dang. I have like live dashboards of, you know, every single piece of equipment that I have in my plant. I can see my bottles per minute. I can see my scrap rate. I can see everything and everything links through hmm. standard costing. Everything links to my actual P&L. So I have like a live P&L which is pretty awesome. So I can always see how I'm doing in any given day and it's like accurate to a T. Hmm. Yeah, Oracle's definitely the end game, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, that's sweet. Like for a lot of the entrepreneurs, they're like, oh man, I can't afford Oracle. Like I couldn't either. And hmm. NetSuite was like, honestly, it was, you know, I think that first year we got like, the first year we did Oracle NetSuite, this is obviously a few years into the business so we could afford it. But, you know, I think it was like, 50k over the course of the year versus like sap and oracle and all these other big ones are like so like literally four times as expensive so netsuite was able you know it's very up and coming they had just gotten bought by oracle and they had again we look for when we're scaling with different systems we look for hey are these guys scaling as fast as we are and are they onboarding as many integrations you know are they going to be in a place where they're going to continue to be the best partner in the industry in 10 years. And they were, and they're like so far ahead of everyone else. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely most, what most people don't look into. I feel like, and it's something that can hurt you in the end is when you, you, you hire some system to do something for you, but then it ends up failing or going out of business itself. And then you're left in the dust with a broken system you have in your own company. And now you got to work. <laughs> you got to figure something out like most entrepreneurs have to do every day with these obstacles that come up. And it's definitely something that people should be more aware of within growing a company. But Ryan, that about ends the interview. If you want to give us an outlet to you where we can find you and what you're doing, and then we can say goodbye. Yeah, find me. Uh, I keep my Instagram private, but you can find <laughs> Waiakea on, uh, on Instagram at W-A-I-A-K-E-A. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Just search up my name. And Ryan... Emmons, E double M O N S, and definitely look up YAK on LinkedIn too. We're on all platforms. Got some good stuff. But awesome. uh, yeah, man, thanks for the time. Good luck. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Thanks again for coming on, man. Peace, bud. What's up, guys? Again, thank you for tuning in to the podcast. If you enjoy the show, if you like the show, then you have no excuses not to subscribe because it takes such a small amount of time. So go and do that for me. I would be very, very sad if you don't pause this episode right where it's at and do that on the platform you're listening on right now. Lastly, go and give a follow to Niche the Niche Instagram page. You can find it at Niche the Niche. You can follow me and what I'm doing with the podcast and also receive leverageable posts, leverageable content through the Instagram. So go and give that a follow and see what I'm doing every day with the podcast. And I will see you guys on the next episode.